But I want to start today's sermon uh, with a question. Anyone feeling cynical these days? Anybody? See some hands raised, some heads nodding. Anyone? Let me ask it another way. Anyone feeling cynical about the leadership in our country? Anybody? I'm seeing hands raised. I hear a few giggles. You know, honestly, this is the truth, and I'm, there, there's probably someone in this room that I haven't talked to, but my experience is this election cycle, I haven't talked to one person who didn't feel like they were choosing between the lesser of two evils. Now, you may be a big Trump person, a big Hillary person. I'm not knocking you at all. I'm just saying everyone I've talked to so far has been like, well, I got to choose one. Or, man, I really don't want that person to be elected president, so I'm going to support this person. And I've noticed that it's not just an attitude of cynicalism. Is that a word? Cynicism. I think I made up a new one. Cynicalism. (laughs) Cynicism about who's running for president. I I, I read and I've been reading and following polls. These days I'm really into polls. I'm just following them all the time. And the rating of approval for Congress for the last several years, has been moving up and down around a percentage of 9 to 11% approval rating of, of Congress. 9%? Can you imagine? 91 people out of 100 are not happy with how Congress is performing sometimes. In fact, and this is probably to keep their jobs alive, these polling organizations are starting to get worried that people will stop paying attention to their polls because they're so low, and Congress has been so low for so long that they've started to do creative things to keep people coming back or to keep people interested or be able to sell their polls to different news outlets and stuff like that so they can pay their bills. So uh, I saw one polling company called Public, polling, po- Public Policy Polling that pitted Congress against other very unpopular things in the world to see who was less popular? <laughs> so I want to read you some. These are, this is real. I have not made this up. But they sort of, out of 100, you choose one, uh, one or the other, and you'll get a percentage of people who think this thing is better than Congress or Congress is better than this thing. Does that make sense? Sometimes it doesn't add up to 100 because there must be some undecided voters out there. But so lice compared to Congress. Lice defeated Congress 67% to 19%. Brussels sprouts beat Congress 69 to 23. Replacement referees outpaced Congress 56 to 29%. Colonoscopies outpolled Congress 58 to 31. Root canals outpolled Congress 56 to 32. Traffic jams beat Congress 56 to 34. And I'm not making this up. In a close decision, cockroaches <laughs> outpolled Congress 45 to 43%. It was close. It was very close. Very close. There's usually a margin of error, right? So maybe there's some hope there. And it's but listen, it's not all bad news for Congress. They did actually manage to beat out playground bullies, the Ebola virus, and the Kardashians. I'm not making that up. That's the truth. I'm not making that up. Now, why am I mentioning this? There's actually a point to this. I'm mentioning this because we're in the middle of a sermon series 
about virtue. And to understand what virtue is, we've been looking at a list of what Paul called the fruit of the spirits. Paul was an early church father who wrote much of the New Testament. And at one point he said, these are signs of virtue, basically. These are signs of the life of God in you. And he listed these fruit of the spirit. And he has a whole list. And so far we've looked at love, joy, peace, forbearance, and kindness. This week we come to goodness. Now goodness is interesting because goodness is often defined in context. So people often understand what goodness is as compared to something else. So if something is good, it's usually in an environment and it's better than whatever that other thing is in the environment. Does that make sense? So it's not like there's this general understanding of goodness. Usually goodness is defined by what surrounds it. And goodness outpaces those things. So for example, the Greeks, and I'm pointing this out because Sometimes you think of goodness and you will only think of it in terms of good versus evil, right? So a good thing versus a bad thing. But that's not the best way to understand goodness. Sometimes goodness is best understood in comparison to a, to a thing that is good, so to speak. That is a, a, a thing that we would all value, but then goodness sort of takes it up a level. So, for example, the Greeks commonly would compare uh, justice and goodness, Both things, I think we both would agree, the world would be better if there were more of. To help you understand goodness, uh, this is the way Barclay describes it. Um, He says, justice, back with the Greeks, they say, is the quality which gives a person what is due him or her. So you get what you deserve. Goodness is the quality which is out to do far more than that and which desires to give a person all that is to his or her benefit and help. In our passage today, The word uh, that in English is goodness comes from a Greek word which means uprightness of heart and life. And as you read about it, if you have the time, I don't know why you would, but I have to, this is part of my job, so I did. Um, I found out that it's almost always tied to, if not always tied to, something outside of yourself. So something that is a benefit to someone else. There's this um, association with generosity that comes with goodness. And so to understand what we're talking about when we say goodness today, here's a definition I'm giving you that I think you'll find helpful. Goodness is something different and better that is done for the benefit of others. That's what makes it good. It's different. It's not the same as everything else. It's not the same as justice, which is a fine thing. A just world is a place we would all want to live in. But it's taking justice And it's going up a level. It's better than justice because it's giving more. It's more generous. Justice is the letter of the law. Goodness is um, generosity on top of what's true and good and right. So something different and better that's done for the benefit of others. And so what I want to do today is to understand goodness. I think it's important that we set it in some sort of context or some sort of environment some sort of situation so that we can see what it is, how it's different and better than other things, and how it's a benefit to others. So we're going to place it in the context today of leadership. What does goodness and leadership look like, and how can we foster that in our own lives? So you guys ready for some good leadership? Anyone? Anybody interested in what that might look like? Okay. Some of you are. So let me read you a passage 
This is Jesus speaking. It comes from the Gospel of John in the 10th chapter. Um, And here's what he says. Very truly, I tell you, Pharisees. Pharisees were the super religious people of his day who really, 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 really were into the Bible and really into following the letter of the law. Very truly, I tell you, Pharisees, anyone who does not enter the sheep pen by the gate but climbs in by some other way is a thief and a robber. The one who enters the gate by the ship, the one who enters by the gate is the shepherd of the sheep. The gatekeeper opens the gate for him, and the sheep listen to his voice. He calls his own sheep by name and leads them out. When he was when he has brought out all his own, he goes ahead of them, and his sheep follow him because they know his voice. But they never follow a stranger. In fact, they will run away from him because they do not recognize a stranger's voice. Jesus used this figure of speech, but the Pharisees did not understand what he was telling them. Therefore, Jesus said again, very truly, I tell you, I'm the gate for the sheep. All who have come before me are thieves and robbers, but the sheep have not listened to them. I am the gate. Whoever enters through me will be saved. They will come in and go out and find pasture. The thief comes only to steal and kill and destroy. I have come that they may have life and have it to the full. I'm the good shepherd. The good shepherd lays down his life for the sheep. The hired hand is not the shepherd and does not own the sheep. So when he sees the wolf coming, he abandons the sheep and runs away. Then the wolf attacks the flock and scatters it. The man who runs away, he runs away because he's a hired hand and cares nothing for the sheep. I'm the good shepherd. I know my sheep and my sheep know me. Just as the father knows me and I know the father and I lay down my life for the sheep. I have other sheep that are not of this sheep pen. I must bring them also. They too will listen to my voice and there shall be one flock and one shepherd. Now, I know I just read you a big chunk of scripture, right? But before we talk about it, I think it's important to understand who Jesus was and the different and better type of leader he was. It's helpful to consider the social context that Jesus is speaking in here. So Jesus here is talking to the Pharisees. They were super religious. They knew the Bible inside and out. And as he's speaking and he uses the term good shepherd, that's going to bring to mind to them a very famous passage from their scriptures in Ezekiel that talks about the shepherds of Israel. Let me read that for you. This is Ezekiel 34. The word of the Lord came to me. That's what the prophet says. Son of man, prophesy against the shepherds of Israel. Prophesy and say to them, this is what the sovereign Lord says. Woe to you, shepherds of Israel, who only take care of yourselves. Should not shepherds take care of the flock? You eat the curds, clothe yourselves with the wool, and slaughter the choice animals, but you do not take care of the flock. You've not strengthened the weak or healed the sick or bound up the injured. You've not brought back the strays or searched for the lost. You've ruled them harshly and brutally, so they were scattered because there was no shepherd. And when they were scattered, they became food for all the wild animals. My sheep wandered all over the mountains, and on every high hill they were scattered over the whole earth, and no one searched or looked for them. This is what the sovereign Lord says. I am against the shepherds and will hold them accountable for my flock. I will remove them from tending the flock so that the shepherds can no longer feed themselves. I will rescue my flock from their mouths. It will no longer be food for them. And how is he going to do this? He says a few verses later, I will place over them one shepherd, my servant David, and he will tend to them and he will tend to them and be their shepherd. I, the Lord, will be their God and my servant David will be prince among them. I, the Lord, have spoken. So, the shepherds described here aren't so great. 
They're using the sheep. Hey, did you notice that? They're using the sheep to eat curds and to have wool for their clothing and to care for themselves as shepherds, but they don't seem to care anything for the sheep themselves. If they run off, fine. If they get scattered, fine. If a wild animal eats them, fine. They're really only looking to use the sheep for their own benefit, but not caring for them. And that is what the folks listening to Jesus and his teaching here had experienced. So it wasn't just this verse about shepherds that were bad shepherds. But during that time, at first in Jesus' life, they were ruled by someone named Herod the Great. He appears in the Bible a little bit. He's famous for trying to hunt Jesus down and kill him when he's an infant. He's also famous for killing lots of innocent infants uh, trying to get to Jesus. But basically, history shows that he was a paranoid power freak. In fact, he had three of his own children put to death because he feared them. Caesar Augustus, great Caesar of Rome, said this of Herod, I'd rather be a pig in the house of Herod than a son. That was his reputation. So that was one ruler they had in the time of Jesus. And when he died, Herod's son that managed to survive took over after his death. And he was such a bad ruler that Rome deposed him and they replaced him with another biblical figure, a guy named Pontius Pilate. Now, Pontius Pilate let the high priest rule over Jerusalem, but, and this is important, their position was tied to him. And so to the Israelite people, they were suspect. They were sort of tainted because their power came through the Roman government. So when Jesus shows up and says, I'm the good shepherd, with all this background, with all these stories of the bad shepherds of Scripture, with their own experience with Herod and Herod's sons and Pontius Pilate, when Jesus shows up and says, I'm the good shepherd, they know exactly what he means. They know what he's referring to. They know who he says or is claiming to be. He's claiming to be this David that we read about. And he knows exactly what they're going to take him to mean and what they need. But he calls himself a good shepherd. So our question today, and I think the question that everyone who heard this the first time Jesus said it, is thinking to themselves is, what makes Jesus' leadership really that good? Okay, you're the good shepherd. Why? How are you different? How are you better? How does your leadership benefit us and not just you? And that's what we're going to look out today. And the first thing is that as we hear these stories that Jesus tells, the thing that, one of the things that Jesus is trying to communicate is that he knows and understands you. Now notice the language that Jesus uses to describe the relationship he has with his sheep. He says, the one who enters by the gate is the shepherd of the sheep. The gatekeeper opens the gate for him and the sheep listen to his voice. He calls his own sheep by name and leads them out. And when he's brought them all out, brought out all his own, he goes on ahead of them and his sheep follow him because they know his voice. They'll never follow a stranger. Now, there's probably not a ton of shepherds here. There's actually one or two I know of that are in our church. Um, and if you're a shepherd today, it's probably a little bit different than it was in the first century. In the first century, there were a couple different types of gates and pens that people used. 
And the one that's being referred to here is the pen that was called a common sheepfold. That's where all the shepherds would bring all their sheep together at the end of the day. So overnight, they would all stay together. And what would happen was in the morning, each shepherd would come to the common sheepfold and call out to his or her sheep. And the sheep that belonged to that shepherd would come to him or her because they knew the voice of the shepherd. They knew the voice of their shepherd. And Jesus is explaining a knowing that a shepherd has with his flock. Later, he says this sort of point blank. He says, I know my sheep and my sheep know me. I think what Jesus is communicating to those that would follow him is that he knows them individually, by name, intimately. In other words, he knows what makes you tick. He knows your dreams. He knows your passions. He knows your greatest successes. He knows your gifts. He knows your strengths. He also knows where you need to grow, where your weak spots are, where you've been hurt, and where you've made mistakes. Having a leader like this is different. And it can be very, very reassuring. It can also be a little bit scary. You know, if you've ever been in a situation where someone knows you so well that they can hurt you because they know exactly what to say or do, and it doesn't take much, they know you that well. That's kind of scary. You know, one of my favorite plays when I was studying theater is a Harold Pinter play. It's called The Homecoming. It's not exactly a fun play to watch, I'll tell you that. So lots of times I tell you my favorite this or that, and it's fun. Oh, yeah, let's go rent that. Let's go see that. This one is a little jarring, I'll tell you that. The main character is a guy named Teddy. Teddy's been away from home studying in America, and he's just come back to visit his family with his fiancée. And a few things are odd right off the bat in the first scene of this play. First of all, they show up in the middle of the night when all of his family's asleep. Second, when he shows up with his fiancée, he opens the door and just stands there. He doesn't go right in. You know, normally when you go home, you go in. He just freezes for a moment. The next thing is odd is he won't let his fiancée wake anyone. And she's expecting, of course, to meet the family. He's like, no, 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 don't wake them. And what you learn is he's coming home to what is not a safe environment. And if you've ever read a Harold Pinter play, and please, you certainly don't have to have read a Harold Pinter play, but one of the common themes about his plays is that what is said is not what's happening. People know each other so well, they know what to say to sort of under the table jab someone. They could be talking about the weather and tearing the person down across the table from them. And if you watch the whole play, uh, Teddy gets attacked verbally, brutally, Because his brothers know all the right buttons to push. They know him so well. Being known is not always safe, is it? Especially when someone has power and they know you. And I think Jesus knows this too. So he doesn't just stop saying, hey, I know you. I know what makes you tick. I know what you're dreaming of. 
I know where you want to be in your life. I know what's holding you back. I know where you've been hurt. He goes the next step forward, and he reassures his listeners. He says this, whoever enters through me will be saved. And that word saved, it can just as easily be translated as kept safe. But I would say this, he goes a little bit farther than that. That's what makes it good. This is what makes it different and better. He's not just interested in keeping you safe. He actually has this bigger plan. He's interested in the renewal of the whole world. And that means you. He's interested in your best. In verse 10, he says, The thief comes only to steal and kill and destroy. I have come that they may have life and have it to the full. This is a big deal. You'll see a lot of churches, this is part of their name, you know, new life, full life, you know, whatever, because this is so different. Uh, There's this contemporary version translation of the Bible called the message, and I love the way they translate this. They translate it like this. I have come that you may have more and better life than they ever dreamed of. And this type of talk, I think, runs right against one of the common perceptions that sometimes we have of God or of faith. And the perception would be that God is just sort of out for his own thing, or this church or that church is just trying to build their own thing. They're not really interested in me. They're just trying to use me. Or God's main goal is to please himself, make himself look good, build up his glory, and he uses us to that end. No matter what the consequences are in our lives or the collateral damage. And we expect God to be like one of those bad shepherds that Ezekiel was talking about. You ever feel like someone was just using you to get what they wanted? Feigning to care about you? Well, here Jesus says that he's come to give his followers more and better life than they ever dreamed of. He's a leader that is interested in the well-being of those who would follow him, and then some. Now, there's a theological idea that I want to make sure that we get here. Because here's, a, here's something that I think is a big theme in the Bible. God is about showing his glory. You can't read the Bible without, you know, the heavens declaring the glory of God. God taking an action to show his glory. That is a big idea in the Bible. And so I'm not saying that what Jesus is saying here is that you are the center of the universe. And that the only thing that matters to God is that your life works and it's happy. I'm not saying that. I'm not saying that everything revolves around you or me. And in verse 16, we see Jesus saying, I have other sheep. Other means not just you. (laughs) Who are not of the sheep pen. I must bring them also. So it can't be just about me. It can't be just about you. Jesus obviously has a mission. There's something he's about. This renewing of the whole world, which I alluded to. Everything God does, does point to how good and great and awesome and good He is, but I think we make a mistake when we assume that God's glory and our happiness are opposed to each other. That to exalt himself 
He has to use you or push you down. What if that isn't true? What if God's glory and our happiness are actually one and the same? What if they work together? What if they're partners? What if God is actually most glorified when you're most happy and delighted and satisfied in Him? You know, if you've had a bad experience with a boss who used you, took credit for your work, whatever, or a parent who tried to live through you, and you were pushed down so that they could rise, it's hard to think God would be different. But this, that's what goodness is. Good for, goodness is being different. There would be no goodness if it wasn't somehow better than what you've experienced. That's what makes it good. And in this scenario, part of the glory that goes to God, and you see this, is in the full life that his followers experience. It works together. It's not opposed. He doesn't want to use you. He wants to renew you because that's his bigger mission, which involves more than you. doesn't circle all around you, but you are an important part of it. So the idea, if we turn to him, if we trust him, if we follow him, his aim is to empower full lives in you, in me. And in this way, God is glorified and we are satisfied. Both and. And in this way, Jesus can point people to himself and promise more and better life than they ever dreamed of. And it, it only makes sense. It only makes sense that he could, like no one else, offer this to us. Because remember, he's the one that knows us. He knows what makes us tick better than we know ourselves. If there is a creator, if there is a God, if you are created, someone knows you better than you even understand yourself. And in this context, being known is the most safe thing in the world because the knower is one who wants to give you the best life possible. And so we're invited We're invited to do something that's hard for people who are hardened by cynicism or cynicalism. We're invited to trust. We're invited to follow. But I will say this. It's not a blind trust, and that's important. Faith in Jesus, following Jesus, There are moments where you're asked to do things that don't make sense. That's what faith is. You do something that seems like it would be to your detriment, but for some reason, Jesus teaches that it's actually for your good. Lots of paradoxes in the Bible. But they're not blind steps of faith based on nothing. There's reason to believe what Jesus says about himself in this passage. And that reason is this. He's actually proven that it's true, or that he's truly for us. So in this passage, he says, Very truly, I tell you, I'm the gate for the sheep. All who have come before me are thieves and robbers, but the sheep have not listened to them. I'm the gate. Whoever enters through me will be saved. They will come in and go out and find pasture. Now, here we're moving on to the second type of sheepfold. So there's one paragraph where he talks about one sheepfold. That's the common sheepfold. End of the day, 
All the sheep are together. They follow the voice of their shepherd. They can hear and they go. The other sheepfold is one that you would find out in the countryside. And it would have a, little, have a, a large fenced-in area where sheep could graze and things like that. But it would have one open area, which was the gate, except in those days there was no gate. The shepherd was actually the gate and would stand at the only opening and keep the sheep from coming and going, but also protect them from any wild animals because it was the only way in and the only way out. The shepherd was, in fact, the door. And so the shepherd stands between the sheep and the wolves. I think Jesus... You can see what he's alluding to here, but he makes this point very sharply a few verses later. He says, I'm the good shepherd. The good shepherd lays down his life for the sheep. The hired hand is not the shepherd, does not own the sheep. So when he sees a wolf coming, he abandons the sheep and he he runs away. Then the wolf attacks the flock. I am the good shepherd. I know my sheep. My sheep know me just as the father knows me and I know the father and I lay down my life for the sheep. Jesus makes it very clear, it's a big theme in this passage, that he will lay down his life for those who follow him. Five times in this chapter, he says that he will lay down his life for his followers. Now, here's the thing. That's what he did. This is what he says he's going to do, but then he actually does it. And the story of the Bible, the big story, is that Jesus went to the cross and laid down his life when no one was following him, when everyone deserted him, so that if we decide to trust him, which is hard for cynical people, if we decide to follow him, the things that destroy our lives, including our own decisions, could be defeated. Literally, he stands between us and our sin and the sin of the world to bring us new life, full life, a better life than we ever dreamed of. So he laid down his life for us. He's done it. He's proven already that he will do what he says he's going to do. If you want to know a leader that you can trust, it's the leader who will sacrifice for you who will get on the down escalator so that you can get on the up one. And there's never been an example of that greater than Jesus, who left equality with God to come to earth as a defenseless baby and lay down his life for his sheep. So we can trust Jesus because his leadership is different, better, and it works to benefit other people. His leadership is full of goodness, full of goodness. And we can cultivate this same type of goodness in our lives as well. This series isn't so much about understanding what goodness or love or joy is as much as it is about developing patterns in our lives so that these fruit of the Spirit can become virtues in our lives. A few weeks ago, I described virtue this way. Virtue is what happens when someone has made a thousand small choices requiring effort and concentration to do something which is good and right, but which doesn't come naturally. 
And then on the thousand and first time, when it really matters, they find that they do what is required automatically, without thinking. It's second nature. Goodness is one of those things, doing something that's different and better and for the benefit of others, that can become second nature. I'm not saying that you don't have any of this nature in you, but something that can be developed, that can happen without thinking. And one of the ways that can happen is if we choose small ways to cultivate that in our lives. So let me give you a few, sort of based on what we see Jesus doing in this passage. The first is, uh, I think this is a clear thing that Jesus does. He cares, yeah? He cares for the sheep. That's a big theme here. So here's a small thing I'd like to encourage you to develop the habit of. And that is this, ask one more question. The good shepherd knows his sheep. He calls them by name. He knows them intimately. They know his voice. He knows theirs. Care enough to get to know someone a little bit better. Ask them one more question. Sometimes the question you can ask can just be, oh, that's interesting. Tell me more. Ask one more question and listen. Learn. Small thing, a habit that you can develop. Asking good questions that aren't yes-no questions. Leave it open for the person to talk. That's a great skill. And it takes a little bit of practice. Second, consider. We, big theme here, that Jesus was in it for the benefit of the people who would follow him. Not exclusively for one person, but certainly for one person as well. So, Consider, what would be good news to your friend? What would be good news? This is such an important question to ask. Ask this question. You know someone pretty well. Or as you get to know them by asking a good question, what would be good news in their life? I'm not talking about over-spiritualizing things. I mean, what would be good news? Wow, they really need a car. If they had a car, that would be good news. Or a ride. You know, what? What small, large thing would be good news? Pay attention. Ask the question. Think about it. Consider. And then the next thing is risk. The way I put this is embrace the cost. I don't even know how to put this. But the idea is, look, if you discover something that would be good news to someone, usually if you're going to be a part of that thing happening, it costs you something. Sometimes it doesn't cost you very much. At least it's going to cost you time, usually. Sometimes it's going to cost you money. Sometimes you might feel a little embarrassed. But embrace that. And do something. Be a part of good news. A little spoiler alert. We are going to talk a lot about good news in the new ministry year. Because I've been watching a lot of news the last month, and there's so much bad news. Next year, we're going to talk a lot about good news. You'll hear more about that. And last little tip here. These are all small, easy things to do. The remember here, remember this is much bigger than you. What I mean is every little thing you do can be a part of this massive thing that Jesus is doing in the world to renew everything. So you may think, oh, it really won't make a big difference. Ah, what's the point? I'm going to put out this effort. Nothing's going to happen. Look, every small choice you make is a part of a much, much, much bigger story that's happening. Let's pray.
Father, we just thank you um, for the good news of Jesus and the model of leadership that we see him displaying. God, help us to learn from that in ways that affect the way that we interact with our families and friends and neighbors, coworkers. Where we're cynical, I pray you give us opportunities to be open and vulnerable. And I pray as we take those steps to trust that we would experience tastes of that life that is bigger and better than we ever dreamed of. Help us to develop habits that lead to character and virtue and shape us to be more like you. Amen. Amen. Amen.